You're listening to Interviews with Adam. I'm your host, Adam Miller, and today we are joined by Ravi Zacharias, who is with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries, and he truly does travel internationally as he proclaims the gospel and and does apologetics across the globe, and uh, you've certainly seen his videos on YouTube or seen him in person at a Songtime Conference. It's a great privilege to have him as a guest today. Ravi, thank you so much for being a part of the Many Voices for that one message. Delighted to be with you, Adam. Thank you so much. Why don't you get us started by telling us a little bit about uh, the ministry that you have and the opportunities you have to share the gospel in universities, in state houses, all over the world in some very unique places. Yes. Uh, in fact, I've just come back from a five-country trip, and the last stop was in uh, Jakarta, Indonesia, <clears throat> and done before that Hong Kong, Singapore, and other parts uh, in Asia. Uh, we do cover the globe, Adam, and uh, I'm part of a 70-member speaking team uh, that is based in about 15 different countries on every continent. RZIM is 33 years old, uh, actually a little longer than that, 34 uh, we started in 1984. Uh, we are apologists, evangelists. We do evangelism. We reach men and women for Christ. And apologetics are sort of the seasoning uh, on the whole thing. The main course is the gospel. I'm based in Atlanta, Georgia, but we have uh, also two major institutes that help train. The Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics is one of them. That's over a dozen years old. And then entering the second year is the Zacharias Institute here in Atlanta, Georgia, where Vince and Joe Vitale are the directors. Uh, So we do evangelism practically. We do it in settings of uh, deep questions and even deep resistance, uh, hostile adversarial settings. But we prepare and train young apologists uh, around the globe. So we just feel that we, this ministry should long outlive any one of us because the gospel is eternally true and questions are ever-present. Your, your ministry of equipping uh, and training people uh, all throughout uh, the world is in these different institutes and uh, through your ministry on your website as well as your radio broadcast, uh, how many people are you training on a regular basis to d- do the work of apologetics? We, had, we do them along different tracks, uh, Adam. Uh, in in uh, Oxford, we have a one-year program uh, where we admit uh, a certain number of students, about 20 on an average, 20 to 25. Then we do a week of apologetics every July where we are allowed to take a maximum of 130. That is always packed to capacity. We do a five-week business training program in uh, Atlanta, we do various programs, Reboot, Remind, uh, and uh, the program involves people who are already in their university training or preparing those who are going into a university training rethink. Uh, so we do this in large numbers in addition to our online program where people register from all over the globe. So apart from the Zacharias Institute, the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and the online program, we carry on seminars in many parts of the globe where the team is quite actively involved. This year we did some what we call executive training. We did it in Sri Lanka and in India. Uh, I just spoke at Singapore, where by special invitation, 
uh, key leaders across the country were invited, and it's a company that has uh, gone on record as being a company with the values and the teachings of the gospel, and they invite people for speaker series. There are different formats, and uh, I would say over the years it's numbered in the tens of thousands that we have trained. You're probably most known for kind of the videos that go viral on the internet with you answering questions in public forums and universities with uh, atheists and agnostics alike, uh, humanists of all the sorts. Uh, what is that sort of uh, environment like, and how do you have those opportunities? Well, it's, it's mixed. Uh, when uh, we started years ago, uh, that was my calling, and still is. But once upon a time, the questions were sort of uh, intellectually rigorous, appear uh, science and faith issues, uh, the whole theory of evolution versus creation or intelligent design. Those were the areas where we knew the questions were going to come. But somewhere in the last eight to 10 years, it has shifted uh, to cultural issues because culturally we are torn on many significant matters uh, that confront us these days. So we have to be very careful how we navigate. How do you uh, hold on to the convictions given to us by God's word, and yet with compassion respond to dissenting voices? So I've always said the content of our answer and the manner of our answer uh, are equally important. If you have good content, but content, but the manner has been unkind and uh, pushed back to the questioner, then the content goes unheard. On the other hand, if we are so kind and cordial in order to win the person over, but the content itself is a compromise, then you've got uh, truth itself in jeopardy. So we've got conviction with compassion uh, in the way we answer these questions, but we get invitations from all over. I'm not able to take 80 to 90% of my invitations. Just are, I cannot, well, I'm 72 now, first of all, and I'm still doing 200 days a year on the road. And there's 70 of our speakers. So they're all busy across the globe. Uh, it, it has changed uh, culturally, but the opportunities continue to multiply and we have to be wise in the way we deal with the questions. Your recent book uh, you've written with Vince uh, Vitali is uh, Jesus Among Secular Gods, where it's kind of a follow-up to Jesus Among Other Gods, where you were dealing right. with a lot of the kind of world religions. Now we've kind of mm -hmm. moved into this post-religion mindset. Right. Uh, address that in context with a lot of the questions you've been fielding in these universities. Yes, so you know, when you think about it in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, the New Age movement was pretty strong. Uh, going back to the 60s with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and Transcendental Meditation, uh, pantheistic worldviews were uh, making inroads into this culture, but doing so not so much as a philosophy of uh, essential values and things as much as it was a philosophy of uh, peace and transcendence and spirituality. And in the middle of all of that, all kinds of... Uh, religious worldviews were making inroads into the West. It used to see, be the East is the East, and the West is the West, and the twain shall never meet. Well, they sure have met, and the melting uh, pot result of worldviews has created more confusion, and in many ways, 
America has been since scampering in search of what it really believes as a nation. So going part the latter part of the last century, we're dealing with so many uh, worldviews, whether it is monotheistic faiths or pantheistic faiths or pluralistic faiths. But then as we moved into the postmodern mindset, uh, the whole issue of no truth, no meaning, no certainty, uh, those took center stage, which is what really postmodernism can be reduced to, that there's no absolute truth, there's no real meaning in life except the one you choose to give it, and you cannot be certain of any metaphysical statements, philosophical statements, so to speak, or value statements. So once uh, postmodernism began to take sway, uh, we realized how much we were answering the questions of skeptics, of secular thinkers, of pluralist thinkers, of anti-Christian thinkers. And uh, a lot of these philosophies, uh, from rationalism to empiricism to existentialism and postmodernism, they were birthed in the, in the cradle of Europe, many of those. And so if you look at European spirituality today, it's sort of uh, uh, almost non-existent. I remember speaking in Paris some years ago, and the person who picked me up and my wife up from the airport, she said, as a seminary student, if she would tell her friends she's in seminary, she said they would have found it more plausible if she'd said she was studying to find out if someday she could go to the moon, uh, rather than dealing with spiritual issues. So Europe has become thoroughly secular, although gradually changes may be taking place there. But that secular impetus is in North America now. Canada is extremely secular. The judgments that are made in the halls of government are getting more and more rabidly secular, as in the recent case where Trinity Western was denied the opening of a law school because the law students would be graduating from there having a certain view of the essence of life or marriage or sexuality. So they were not even given the permit to open a law school. That's how secular Canada has been, and the United States, of course, following suit just, as, just the same. Have you noticed uh, in the conversations as well as the uh, topics of discussion that you have at these uh, universities, fielding questions or uh, in the middle of debates, have you noticed a little level of hostility developing uh, to growing as, as we deal with the concept of truth and, and Christianity on the public stage? Uh, yes, there has been. And, uh, but you know what, Adam, I've come to the conclusion that sometimes the noisiest ones get the most attention. Mm. And uh, one favor they do serve when they create that much of noise is they actually create more interest and the auditoriums get packed to capacity. We've, we, we've had uh, at Michigan State, we had 9,000. At the University of Florida, we had, I think, 7,000. Uh, we get the places quite packed with students, faculty, and visitors. Uh, some will be hostile, but... You know, uh, it all depends on how we even begin to answer the questions. Uh, I always tell my team we are not answering a question, we are answering a questioner. So always bear that in mind. If you answer a question without responding properly to the questioner, you've really basically spoken to a wall. You've not dealt with the issue. There is hostility, and in some parts of the world, uh, you're dealing with counter-perspectives religiously. But I would say overall, we find ourselves being very well received. Uh, I wasn't at Berkeley, but our team was at Berkeley last year or a year before. Uh, in spite of the fact that it's an extremely liberal institution, uh, 
the students gave the team a good hearing. Uh, I, along with Vince Vitale, was at uh, University of Florida, Gainesville, uh, very courteous questions, and there, as I think I said, there were, if I'm not mistaken, 7,000-plus at that event. Uh, I find that the questioner who comes to the microphone is not as hostile as sometimes the articles that precede are coming. It does seem that we're in this opportunity where there's more uh, opportunity for us to share our faith, to be witnesses. As they say, darker the night, the brighter the light. But uh, we need these people to take these opportunities to, to be bold. And you have such a unique way of, of handling those questions uh, in a way that doesn't escalate the host- hostility, uh, really calming the situation and being accepted uh, from how you answer the question calmly. They listen to you. Uh, what advice do you have for, for our listeners who are looking to navigate those challenges challenging questions, but do it in such a way that uh, warrants their their ability to listen to what we have to say about our faith? Well, two things I would say. Number one, uh, the question of meaning and purpose has always been present with humankind. And when you're dealing especially with the younger ones, you may be dealing with 13, 14-year-olds. They are struggling with the issue of meaning and purpose. The rising rate of suicides amongst the young is a painful reminder that they are struggling for a purpose in life. So on the one side of it is that real hunger, that real search. Secularism has failed. It really doesn't bring uh, either individual or collective meaning. It just has this broad strokes idea of a basis on which to make decisions, but existentially it has become quite uh, irrelevant and pre- pre- generating more purposelessness in life. Love and love has been redefined. The home has been redefined. Everything has been redefined. And what we've got is a group of uh, people within our culture who are empty. So that's one side of it. The second is the coherence and the beauty of the gospel. You know, the Bible is so specific in its analysis. The problem is not outside of me. I'm not... Uh, try, trying to solve problems out there first. I have to deal with the problem within myself, within my own heart. And if we don't deal with the fact that sin is a real issue, what is sin? We can give it theological terms, we can give it uh, many uh, biblical terms and uh, doctrinal terms, but basically at its core, it's a violation of purpose, the purpose for which we were created by a holy God, our Creator. And when you violate that purpose and you go in in the wrong direction, uh, you break yourself upon the, the laws of God. You think you're breaking the laws, but you're really breaking yourself. The laws still stand. So I would say two things. Recognize the hunger within the average human heart. And number two, the coherence and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to bring meaning and to help transform lives. Do it by listening carefully and presenting how beautiful are the answers of Jesus that uh, in, in surrendering we win and in dying we live. As we're thinking about uh, the the culture and how it's changed, as well as our commission for uh, sharing the gospel and uh, sharing this good news throughout all of the world, we have to think of our own backyard. And, and we're here in New England, 
uh, where uh, recent studies showed that 49 counties here in the Northeast and clustered up here around New England are under 3% evangelical. As we wow. see this trend going towards where Canada and uh, uh, Europe have been, uh, what, what advice do you have? You've been to New England, you've ministered up here. What kind of advice do you have on how to navigate uh, sharing the gospel in a post-Christian world? Well, the, the part of the world that you're referring to, of course, New England is extremely tough and has been. But we've placed some of our fellows in, in, in that area in Boston, and they're telling us of the people that come to engage them in dialogue and in conversation, uh, that they see some fascinating results. Uh, they, just, they just want to be heard, and they want to uh, respect the person from whom they're hearing the answer. So I would say that maybe in public proclamation, it is going to be tougher out there, but in dialogues and in private settings and uh, discussing these issues with students and faculty, uh, we are beginning to see some uh, openings that I think are really and very encouraging. That's the first thing. The second thing is uh, think of what... uh, the foreign student has brought into the United States from Hong Kong, from from Taiwan, from Korea, and yes, even from India. We see uh, more and more people who've given their lives to Jesus coming overseas and studying. If you walk into an open forum, whether it's at Columbia, whether it's at Cornell, uh, a vast percentage of the audience is Asian. So I think God is moving uh, amongst Asian cultures bringing them here to the United States to help turn the U.S. back to the Lord. Once upon a time, we sent missionaries. Now they are sending missionaries to us. So I would say we can't just look at the public proclamation model. We have to be around tables and dinners and conversations. That's where individual lives are transformed. I can attest to that uh, personally. My fiance is actually Brazilian, and it's one of the oh. most common languages here in uh, southern New England. It's just, I think it's the second most common language, uh, Portuguese, oh. and uh, there's yeah. just a revival taking place. It's an international revival yeah. happening right underneath yeah. our noses, but here's an opportunity yeah. in partnership uh, to join with our brothers and sisters from different cultures to really uh, pour into the mission field, the ever-growing mission field here of New England, and we, you have a lot of great resources, especially here in New England, uh, with several different guys that uh, uh, can get plugged into these churches. Is that kind of what your ministry is doing, is plugging these guys into churches as well as the universities? We are doing, oh yes, we have to have a very strong ecclesiology, the value of the church, the place of the church, and if the churches can really uh, get a hold of the importance of entertaining foreign students and international students, Many of them uh, come uh, with no kind of faith. Others come with a very strong faith, and uh, they can be so well the salt and light in uh, in in the settings here. But yes, uh, but you know, overseas, the fastest growing church in the world is in China, and I've heard that the second fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. Uh, it's fascinating what I think God is doing in the global scene. I was in Iraq uh, some time ago. And when I saw the uh, places packed and with young men, young women attending, uh, and then I was being told in Jordan that the most well-attended service is the Wednesday night service in the middle of the week 
where refugees from Iraq and refugees from uh, uh, Syria are poured into these countries by the tens of thousands, and they are coming to know Christ uh, attending church because they're seeing the love of Christ demonstrated to them in these refugee camps. Things are happening globally, and uh, in spite of the darkness of the various diaspora around the globe, uh, it is bringing people into contact with the gospel. Now, you have a uh, familiarity with the Ministry of Song Time and our own Dr. John DeBrine and uh, his ministry now, uh, 55 years, your ministry, uh, 33 years, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, had a huge influence uh, with each other. Uh, Maybe you could share a few words of your familiarity with John and uh, his ministry uh, that uh, Song Time has been for you. Well, actually, it's more his influence upon me and upon my family for the years that have gone by. Many may not be aware that uh, I had just arrived in Canada in the mid-60s. I was 20 years old, and I had developed a great interest in uh, a young gal at our church, Margaret. We call her, and, uh, she went by the name of Margie. They always, her family always vacationed in at Cape Cod, and once John was speaking there, and uh, she went up to him and asked him afterwards if he would please pray for a young man called Ravi Zacharias that she had met, and uh, that there was a truly an, a romantic interest. But beyond that, Margie was convinced that God's hand was uh, upon my life, calling me into evangelism, asking John DeBrine to pray. That's the first time I'd heard his name. I was new arrival in the West. And he prayed with her then for me and assured her that he would be praying for me as time went by and for us. Now we have celebrated 46 years of marriage, 46 years of ministry, and only heaven, the heavens will reveal uh, how wonderful is the impact of people's prayers. And of course, John was one of the earlier pioneers on the on the air uh, airwaves there, and to take the message of Christ across the radio to various homes and through music and through song and through uh, uh, the spoken word. So, you know, we owe a lot to that vintage of people like John, and uh, they are they're a treasure. They're unique, and may their tribe increase. Having served the Lord in ministry for all of the, these years and for really shepherding the next generation of apologists and, and witnesses, uh, what encouragement have you gleaned that is really the thing that you want all of our listeners to take home as a reminder of the calling that we have been given and the blessing that we have to share with our world? Uh, never underestimate the impact of your life upon an honest questioner. Uh, you may think at that time that uh, not a very convincing job was done, but almost everyone we hear their story, it's a case of who was the first one who started to listen to them, to give them, to give them a hearing, to pray with them, and to pray for them. Uh, don't underestimate the impact you can have on a life. Number two, don't uh, get... Uh, despondent about the times. They are hard times. Even as I'm speaking to you, you know, the confirmation hearings are being uh, going on for a Supreme Court justice, and you notice the rancor, the hostility, the anger, and what poor examples even some leaders are uh, to the next generation. But if you just look at that, you'll give up hope. 
In such dark times, when the light of the gospel shines, it shows the darkness for what it is, and it shows the light for the way it really ought to be. So we're living in difficult times, <clears throat> but in difficult times, the message shines through. And all it takes is conversion of a handful of people to help change society and indeed the globe. A great encouragement, especially for those of us here in New England and the Northeast, where uh, the the message of the gospel is quick, it's powerful, and as we'll see, as the saints gather together uh, at the Songtime Definitions Conference, it, it will be a huge encouragement uh, to see so many willing and passionate about sharing their faith. So, uh, Dr. Ravi Zacharias, thank you so much for sharing your story, uh, sharing your encouragement, and for challenging us to be effective witnesses for the sake of the kingdom. Kingdom of God. Thank you, Adam, very much, and thanks for your kind words, and uh, I'm looking forward to being with you also. We hope you enjoyed this interview made possible by our ministry at Songtime Radio. You can find out more information about our ministry by visiting our website at songtime.com, where you can find this and other interviews on our podcast series, as well as our weekday broadcast, which includes teaching, interviews, and music. We also want to encourage you to sign up for our free monthly newsletter. It's got encouraging articles, and there is no obligation to find out more information about our ministry. Again, visit our website at songtime.com. This ministry is made possible by people just like yourself. We are 100% supported by our listeners. So if you have been blessed today, why not join with the many voices together for that one message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, with your donation to the Songtime ministry. To make a donation, you can do so online at our website at songtime.com, as well as by mail. Write to us at Songtime Radio, P.O. Box 100, Barnstable, Massachusetts, 02630, or give us a call. Make a donation over the phone. It's 508-362-7070. On behalf of our entire Songtime staff and our own Dr. John DeBrine, the founder here at Songtime, who encourages you to grow in grace and not groan in disgrace, from Cape Cod, I'm Adam Miller. God bless.